Hello and welcome to Crossview Radio, weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, I am uh, pleased today to introduce you uh, to, to you a guest that I know will be uh, a blessing to you. We, as a church, plan on beginning a four-part series on apologetics, really during our afternoon service at Crossview Church, entitled Ultimate Apologetics. And that video series is one that was done by Dr. Jason Lyle. Dr. Lyle uh, holds his PhD in astrophysics from the University of Colorado in Boulder. He has made uh, discoveries in analyzing the surface of the sun as well as actually discovering a planet. He's written some of the planetarium shows for the Creation Museum and has authored several books, including Taking Back Astronomy, Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, The Ultimate Proof of Creation, Discerning Truth, and Understanding Genesis. Dr. Lyle is joining us today for the podcast. So, Dr. Lyle, it's a joy to have you on today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Such a, such a joy to have you today. And as we were talking just a moment ago, really appreciate uh, your um, stance on the authority of the Word of God. And that just comes out in everything that I've seen you do. And so just want to thank you for, for that stance and for your love for the Word of God, even in the realm of science. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you. That's encouraging. Can you tell us, as we get started here today, maybe just a little bit about yourself? Uh, how did you get to where you are today? Um, you, you're, uh, you've studied astrophysics, you've got a PhD in that, and you're doing a lot of apologetics now. Uh, what, where, how did you get from, you know, from there to here, and what's the story behind that? Okay, well, I'm I'm a Christian. That's the most important thing. Yeah. The Lord saved me from my sins, mm-hmm. and um, and I and I love Him, and I want to serve Him. And I, and I I was I was saved when I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. I was probably around six or seven years old, okay. and I was reared in a Christian family. But I always loved science as well. I always mm-hmm. enjoyed it, and it's, it's astronomy in particular, but but all science. I just found it fascinating. And uh, as I went along, I discovered that that some of the views that were put forth by scientists didn't mesh very well with scripture evolution mm. being a big one sure. and uh, so i had to make a, a decision about you know am i going to accept what the what the majority of scientists say or am i going to accept what god has said in his mm. word and uh, you know my parents were uh, very solid christians they're still very very good christians and they encouraged me to stay with god's word and i didn't have all the answers at that point mm-hmm. but that that triggered an interest in me how do i account for what I'm being taught in school versus what the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. And so that got me very interested in uh, apologetics, the defense of the faith. And so I, uh, as I went along, by the time I was in college, I was already uh, pretty well committed to creation. And I'd started learning some of the uh, specific lines of scientific evidence that that confirmed creation, mm-hmm. lines of evidence that are not often shared mm-hmm. in public schools because they're so contrary to evolution, sure. and uh, and and frankly the millions of years that that you know the secular scientists require in order for evolution to be even remotely feasible, and so uh, by the time I was halfway through college, I was 
what I what, what we would call a biblical creationist. I believed mm-hmm. in the Genesis account. I believed it was literal. It was the six days, and I became very interested in how the science confirms that. Sure. I then went uh, to uh, I, when I graduated from Ohio Wesleyan University, and then I went to uh, University of Colorado in Boulder, where I got my master's degree and PhD in astrophysics. Mm-hmm. And all that time, I I continued to learn about God's word and about how science confirmed God's word. And so when I then graduated with my PhD in astrophysics, I immediately went into creation ministry, creation apologetics. I was okay. with Answers in Genesis for a while, and then ICR, yes. and now I've branched out and I've started one called the, the Biblical Science Institute, where mm-hmm. we show people how science confirms what the Bible teaches, particularly in Genesis. Hmm. Why is why is this so important? I mean, why spend the time? What Maybe describe just briefly, what is Christian apologetics, why should we be concerned about engaging that as Christians? Apologetics basically is the defense of the faith. People hear the word apologetics, which comes from apology, mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting because that word originally meant kind of the opposite of what it means today. Sure. Today, when you apologize, you're admitting guilt and you're you know, you're saying, I'm sorry. But originally, apology was to give a defense. It's to say, I'm not guilty, and here's the reason why. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the Bible tells us that we're supposed to do that. when any Whenever anyone asks a reason for the hope that's in us, we're to be able to provide that. We're to be able to provide a defense, an apologetic. And right. so it's a, it's a command from God that we're supposed to to be able to defend the Christian faith. And God often will use our arguments. He always uses our arguments. Sometimes it doesn't bring a conviction to a person, but that's God's prerogative. Our mm-hmm. our job is simply to give a defense of the mm-hmm. faith. And, you know, even if sometimes people get upset because they'll say, well, I, you know, I made this, what I think is a pretty good argument and the person didn't convert. Mm-hmm. Well, I got news for you. You can't convert somebody. Only right. God can do that. Right. But you should be happy if you made a good argument and he made it in a way that is faithful to the scriptures and you did it with the right motives and the right goal. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, our God also uses our message as one of condemnation to those who mm-hmm. refuse to think rationally, those who refuse to to bow uh, to, to the Lord God. And so either way, whether, whether the person converts or not, uh, it's our job to give a defense because it's something that God has told us to do. And the most delightful thing is, of course, when God uses our apologetic as part of the means by which he draws people to himself. And God can use our arguments yes. as part of the mechanism by which he persuades someone, and that's that's wonderful to see. Yeah, it reminds me of Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation, not my own ability to convince someone into the kingdom, but it's ultimately the work of, of the Spirit in that. We're talking about apologetics and different... Um, we we acknowledge that different Christians have different ideas on how this should be done. There's not a universal agreement. Can you just describe maybe some of the differences between different various apologetic uh, methodologies? Yeah, there are there are several. There there's the uh, there's the classical method. There's the evidential method. There's the uh, cumulative case method, and so on. But um, I guess classical and evidential will be the two most common, mm-hmm. and they differ from the method that I'm using, which is what's called presuppositional mm-hmm. apologetics. But um, with with the classical approach, usually people will try to uh, they'll try to use reason. Reason with rationality would be the standard by which things are judged, uh-huh. and ultimately, what they try to do is they try to build up a case, usually by first establishing that God exists or very likely exists. And, and then they'll try to show that that God is the Christian God, and then they'll try to show that the Bible is true, and so on. It's kind of a stepwise fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, evidentialism 
uh, is similar, although they would probably jump right in and say the, the order is not so important. But they would they would try to show that evidence shows that the Christian worldview is at least very likely to mm -hmm. be true. And so they're they're both probabilistic methods. Yeah. But the the thing that they have in – I kind of lump them together, evidentialism and, and classical, because in my mind they're very similar. In both of these methods, people will appeal to something outside of the Bible mm -hmm. as the proof of the Bible or as the, the evidence that makes the Bible likely. So there's some, there's some standard of knowledge that, mm -hmm. that they accept, be it rationality, be it sensory experience, and then they try to show that the Bible um, is, is likely to be true based on that standard. Mm -hmm. Now – uh, I use the presuppositional method, and it's different because the presuppositional method says, "Now wait a minute, the Bible is the ultimate standard, mm -hmm. and so you can't you can't test it by some other standard because uh, if if it disagreed with that standard, it'd be the other standard that's wrong, not the right. Bible." And so, and maybe we, maybe we can talk a little bit more about sure. that method. But basically, the 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 bottom line is the presuppositional method takes the Bible to be the ultimate standard mm -hmm. by which all truth claims. Are ultimately evaluated, and the other methods take something other than the Bible mm -hmm. as the ultimate standard. And and you can see why there's an appeal to these other methods because people think, well, you can't you can't use the Bible to defend the mm -hmm. Bible, and uh, and that's something that I I point out. Well, that's actually not a good argument because mm -hmm. in battle you can stand on a hill while you're defending the hill. In fact, right. that's a great place to be. Yeah. So um, and, and when it comes to an ultimate standard, maybe we'll come back to this later, but when it comes to an ultimate standard, you have to stand on the thing you're defending yes. in order for it to be logically cogent. Mm -hmm. So um, so I'm a presuppositionalist, and I believe that's the most biblical method. I believe it's the method that the Bible itself endorses. Yeah, I grew up um, really never being introduced to the uh, presuppositional model I had. I remember yeah. even sitting in classrooms and learning about apologetics, and I, I didn't know at the time, but there was something, and, and I think this was because of perhaps just the strong commitment that I had to the authority of Scripture. I was hearing these apologetic methodologies, and I was uneasy. I didn't know why. I, I wasn't sure, but all I knew is that at the end of the day, it just felt like, and you said this a minute ago, but it felt like... The best that these systems can do is make Christianity probable. Yeah. And, and I thought, should my faith rest on that? Should, should my faith rest on, well, it's, it's very likely that this is true? Or can my faith rest on something more firm than that? And that is, this absolutely is true. So I'm sitting in college uh, class, student next to me, we're talking. He's reading the book, Always Ready by Greg Bonson. We begin reading, or we begin talking about that book, and he referenced the, of course, as you know, the famous debate with Dr. Stein there. And I was, he explained what the debate was about, and I, I was kind of excited about it, and so I listened to it. And for me, that was, I think, a, a turning point in my own way of thinking because I, this is what I've been looking for. Mm -hmm. I have been looking for something where you can. Where, where the truth of God's word can be argued for as this is absolutely true, not this is probably true, uh, and, and it could be effective. Uh, and it was more effective than the other methodology. So um, those were the two things for me, I think. Number one, it's biblical, and number two, it's effective. And I think you hit on those a little bit, but maybe can you expand on that a little bit more? Why is presuppositional apologetics biblical? And then why is it uh, effective, whereas the other methodologies ultimately are not effective? 
Yes. Uh, and you know, your actually your experience was pretty similar to my own. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'd also grown up hearing the the evidential approach where you know Christianity is very likely to be true based sure. on these these other standards that that purport to be greater than the standard of, of God and 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 you know that, when that's all you hear you think well yeah maybe that's the way to go but then mm-hmm. uh, as you become more mature in your theology you think no wait a minute how how dare anyone uh, propose a standard that's greater than God how mm-hmm. how dare anyone say well God I'm I'm going to show that you likely measure up, but I'm going to use this other standard <laughs> over here. And when I heard the Bonson-Stein debate, that was a turning point for me as well. Mm-hmm. When I when I listened to that debate, I heard Bonson argue. Uh, the thought that crossed my mind was this man argues like Jesus did. Yeah, and that that was the thing that really struck with me. And I I resolved. I said I'm going to learn to think the way he thinks and to defend the faith the way sure. he defends the faith. And I read his book, Always Ready, and I've, I've listened to a bunch of his other um, presentations. But yeah, it, the, the thing that makes uh, Bonson's approach and the, the presuppositional approach unique is that it doesn't deviate from Scripture. It yes. doesn't say, well, it doesn't concede to the ignorance of the critic and thinking, well, that the Bible the Bible is just one hypothesis like many to be mm-hmm. considered uh, and to be evaluated by the standards of man. No, the Bible is the foundational framework by which yes. we form hypotheses about other things. And so uh, it is biblical. One of the things to me that that um, that stands out in terms of the biblicalness of the presuppositional method is this is when Jesus was tempted in the in the wilderness by Satan, his response was a presuppositional response. Hmm. Uh, for one, he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now he's mm-hmm. quoting a passage in, I think it's Deuteronomy. Sure. Uh, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that, now wait a minute, what are these other methods doing? These evidential methods, aren't they putting God to the test? Aren't mm. they saying, now, now maybe God passes the test, but they're still, they're still putting God to some kind of test, some other standard. And that's yeah. not biblical. God tells yeah. us not to do that. And the people say, well, how are we supposed to know then? Well, it's not that God can't be put to the test. The Bible simply says, you shall not. You shall not mm. put the Lord your God to the test. God himself can lay down tests mm-hmm. uh, for, for – God himself can make a proof of God, if you will. And he's done that in the scriptures, and that's the thing that makes presuppositionalism unique is that it is biblical. It doesn't put God to the test by some yeah. outside standard. Rather, it uses the test of scripture to demonstrate yeah. – that uh, indeed God makes knowledge possible, and I would argue that because it's biblical, it's effective. Yes, I agree. And yeah, yeah and and you know, now Dr. Stein was not convinced by Dr. Bonson's argument, but he, you know, he's Dr. Stein was committed to the secular worldview, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, he could not give a cogent answer yes. to Dr. Bonson's argument. It, it um, as Dr. Bonson himself liked to put it, it's not our job to open people's hearts; that's up to the Holy Spirit. It's our job to close their mouths, and the presuppositional method does that very yes. effectively. It refutes any possible argument that can come along. Yeah, so these other standards, would it be fair to say then that uh, they are really putting God on trial, whereas the presuppositional method is God putting man on trial in one sense? Is that a fair way Absolutely. to say it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, as, as you know, as C.S. Lewis put it, you know, that we're putting God in the dock. Now, he was mm-hmm. not always... Uh, fully consistent with that, unfortunately, sure. but but it's a good point. These other yeah. methods say man is the ultimate judge of truth, right. whereas the presuppositional method says, no, God is the ultimate judge of truth. Yeah. And that goes to the passage in Hebrews where God swore by himself because yes. there was no greater standard. He could, God could not appeal to 
this is true because of this greater standard. And if that was true, then that would be the standard instead of God. Exactly. Um, and uh, I think that really goes well with, with this idea of presupposition apologetics. Can you explain briefly for us um, maybe the relationship we've got, specifically the transcendental argument for God's existence? Maybe someone's never heard of that before um, and how it relates to presuppositional apologetics. Yeah, basically the transcendental argument, it's kind of backwards from the way that, that most arguments are done. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, it's logically cogent. It, mm-hmm. it works. And what it does is it asks what would have to be true in order for our experiences of the universe to make sense. Mm-hmm. What would have to be true in order for us to have knowledge, knowledge of science, knowledge of morality, knowledge of mathematical truths, knowledge of logic? Uh, what would have to be true? And the answer to that inevitably is the Bible would have to be true. Unless the Bible, in what it says about the nature of man, the nature of God, the nature of the universe, unless the Bible is true about those things, it turns out knowledge would be impossible. Mm-hmm. People say, well, wait a minute, I know, I know some things. Yes, you do. That's because the Bible's true. Yes. And, and so what, what uh, the, the Transcendental Method does is it shows people that if they pick any worldview other than the Bible, they would inevitably come to the conclusion that knowledge is not possible. Yeah. You can't actually know anything. And it's a very powerful method, and it's it's granted it's one that a lot of people haven't heard before, but nonetheless, it's absolutely devastating because indeed there's no other worldview that makes knowledge possible. Now, knowledge is true, justified belief. In order for something, to, in order for in order for you to say I know something, mm-hmm. first of all, it have to be true, right? Mm-hmm. If it's not true, you don't really know it. It's something you believe, uh, but also it's justified, meaning you have a good reason for it. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that. Unless the biblical worldview is is correct, unless it's true, you could never justify those things you believe. You could say, well, I believe that my senses are basically reliable, that what I see corresponds to reality. But how do you know that? Mm. Now, you can't say, well, because my other senses tell me it's reliable because you're just relying on your other senses. Sure. Then. How do you know that you're not just a brain in a, in a jar and that, mm-hmm. you know, or like in the Matrix where everything sure. is being fed into you? Well, it turns out in the biblical worldview, I can justify the reliability of my senses because they are designed by God. God made the seeing eye and the hearing ear, the Bible says. And so I would expect that they would have a relationship to reality. And so I can justify the things necessary for knowledge, but only if the Bible's true. Mm. And if the Bible's not true, you couldn't prove that anything is true. And that goes to an illustration that I know you've used before and others, and that is kind of the, the and maybe you can explain this a little bit, the critic of air. Um, yes. That would be a very similar argument to what I, what you're saying here with, um, you know, assuming the Bible, trusting the Bible, and, and the Bible gives meaning to all these things. How does that illustration uh, impact this? Yeah, well, the Bible justifies our confidence in laws of logic, for example. Laws mm-hmm. of logic are the rules that we use for reasoning, and they don't change with time, and they— you know, they're the same everywhere because God doesn't change with time and he's sovereign of the mm-hmm. entire universe. So I can make sense of laws of logic because I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. because I have a biblical worldview. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that that those who reject God, the atheist also believes in laws of logic, mm-hmm. but he shouldn't if he were consistent right. because he can't make sense of the existence of, of laws of reasoning if there's no lawgiver, let alone why they should be the same at all times and in all locations in the universe. And so the the atheist has to use something that, that doesn't make any sense, that can't exist in his worldview mm-hmm. in order to argue against the biblical God that makes laws of logic possible. And so it's a bit like the critic of air. Can you imagine somebody arguing that air doesn't exist? All the while he's breathing air. 
and using error and mm. to make his arguments. The fact that he's able to make his case proves that his case is wrong yes. because he must use yeah. that which he cannot account for in his yeah. worldview, that indeed which is contrary to his worldview. Yeah. And likewise, the non-Christian would have to use laws of logic or science or something like that, things that don't make sense apart from the biblical sure. worldview in order to make his argument. So the fact that he can make an argument immediately proves that his argument is wrong. Yeah. And in this whole thing, we're kind of getting real close to this idea of ultimate standards, and you, you briefly mentioned them before. Uh, but to borrow an example from, from Dr. Bonson, if I wanted to prove that there were crackers in the pantry, you know, I go over to the pantry, I, I open it up, and I show you the crackers. But if I want to prove an ultimate standard, I'm going to have to take a little bit of a different approach. You talked about standing on a hill while defending the hill. Tell us yes. what an ultimate standard is. And then how do you effectively argue for the uh, ultimate standard of Scripture? Well, we use standards every day in order to, uh, to, to make judgments about things. We have a standard by which we make the judgment. So, for example, if I wanted to know how long a table is, the standard might be a ruler. I could use a ruler and I could lay it back, or a tape measure, and I could, I could mm -hmm. measure the length of the table. And if you and I had a disagreement about the length of the table, we could settle that debate by getting out our rulers and measuring it. And we ought to come to agreement mm -hmm. if we're both using the same rulers. Now, suppose that we, we both measured the length of the table and we got a very different answer. I, you know, I say it's three feet long. You say it's two and a half. And we, uh, we get out our rule and we hold our rulers next to each other. And sure enough, my ruler is a different size than yours. Mm -hmm. So mine says 12 inches is a certain height. And yours says 12 inches is a different, right. is a greater height. Now, now how do we argue? Now, it would be ridiculous to say, well, we need more tables, right? because no, no matter how many tables we measure, sure. we're going to get a different answer because we're using a different standard. And so when the debate is about what standard you should use, what ruler you should use, you're, you can't just measure a bunch of things. And that is analogous to the, the debate over biblical authority, because mm. my argument is the Bible is the standard. It's the ruler by which we measure and, and decide the truth of everything else in the universe. My secular colleague might say, no, there's some other standard. And the way we often try to prove it to each other is we try to measure different tables. Mm. And that's not the way to go about it. Somehow I have to show that my standard is the correct standard. And the way I do that is with the yeah. transcendental argument. I show that my standard makes knowledge possible, mm -hmm. whereas the standard of my uh, opponent uh, would make knowledge impossible. And yet we both agree knowledge is possible. So that tells me that, that my standards are the right one. You're going to have to use that standard when you uh, defend it, mm. and, and that's true no matter what ultimate standard you use, because it's ultimate. Yeah. Uh, so, so in other words, and maybe I should explain that too, we have different standards, but some are more ultimate than others. You know, I might, how do I know my ruler is right? Well, I could go and check against the, there's an official rod in France where mm. <laughs> they define the meter, and I could use that, but how do I know that one's right? And so on and so forth. It, it's going to go back to an ultimate standard, one that that uh, you can't question yeah. because it's ultimate. There's nothing greater than it. And so it must, it must in some sense, prove itself. Yeah. And I would argue that the Bible is that ultimate standard for knowledge. It proves itself and everything else. And this may be, I have this question maybe a little bit later on, but this would be a good point to bring this question up. Uh, talk about circular reasoning, because someone listening to that, hearing you're going to use it to prove itself, that sounds very circular. And you, you make a distinction between different kinds of, of circular reasoning. Is, is circular reasoning fallacious? Is it a wrong way of reasoning? Uh, when is it good? When is it not good? How do we use it? How do we not use it? 
Yeah, it's something that most people haven't really thought a lot about. They've heard that circular reasoning is wrong, and it usually is. Uh, but but why is it wrong? Because you see, most errors in reasoning involve a conclusion that does not follow from the premise. Mm-hmm. You say the sky is blue, therefore roosters are bigger than chickens. Well, that doesn't follow, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a there's a gap there. With circular reasoning, it does follow. If you say the Bible is true because the Bible is true, well, there's that's consistent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the problem is most circular arguments don't prove anything beyond what they assume. Mm. And so the, the problem with most circular reasoning is that it's arbitrary. And so somebody who somebody who argued, well, the Quran is true because it's true, I would say, well, you haven't proved anything beyond what you've assumed. You've arbitrarily assumed something and then you've followed it through to its conclusion. Mm-hmm. But anyone who would disagree with the conclusion would also disagree with the premise. So it doesn't mm-hmm. prove anything beyond what it assumes. Except when it comes to an ultimate standard. With an ultimate standard, you cannot use anything greater to prove it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be ultimate. See, normally, the way we escape a circular argument, if we want to say, you know, X is true, is we appeal to some greater standard. We say, well, no, X follows logically from Y. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that makes sense. That's not circular. That's straightforward. But then, of course, I'm going to have to ask how how you know Y is true. And then I said, well, that's proved from Z and so on. And you can you can continue that chain. But the problem is that chain can't go on forever because you mm-hmm. can't know an infinite number of things. Mm-hmm. And so the chain either has to it, the chain has to stop at some point since you can't know everything. And the question is, how do you prove that ultimate standard? Mm-hmm. You can't prove it from something that, that's more basic. Otherwise, it wouldn't be ultimate. You can't prove it from something that's less basic because that doesn't that doesn't follow because it would be resting on that. Obviously, an ultimate standard it's it's either assumed, in which case you don't actually know it, or it has to prove itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, this you know there's there's a lot to this, and I've written books on this topic and mm-hmm. so on that people listeners will want to get if they want to study this. But basically, an ultimate standard must prove itself, and uh, that is that is biblical. It's consistent because the as you pointed out earlier in Hebrews six, when when God. Uh, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore right. by himself. God does use circular reasoning. In fact, all of God's reasoning is circular because mm-hmm. God already knows everything. Mm-hmm. And so any conclusion he draws is something that he already already knew to begin with. So um, it, it's it, circular reasoning is not wrong if it's not arbitrary. That's yeah. the key. If it's logically necessary for me to use a circular argument. But one example of this would be laws of logic. Now, if, can you prove that laws of logic exist? Well, I think you can but not without using them. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to use laws of logic to prove laws of logic because right. there's no alternative. That's what we use to prove things. On the other hand, it's not fallacious because any person who disagreed with laws of logic would also have to use laws of logic to right. disprove laws of logic, which would be an inconsistent <laughs> circle. So the only consistent circle is one in which you use laws of logic mm-hmm. to prove laws of logic, and therefore laws of logic exist. So that's the kind of argument that we're making for Christianity. We're not just saying the Bible's true because it's true. That would mm-hmm. be a silly, vicious, circular right. argument. Rather, we're saying the Bible is is the necessary standard for proving itself and everything else. Yeah. And that's a different kind of an argument. There's there's a degree of circularity there, but it, it's my it, it's more of a spiral because it goes out beyond its own plane, and it proves everything else. Yeah, and I think in your book, and you can uh, correct me on on the, the phrasing here, but you said something to the effect of, uh, "It's not just uh, the Bible is true because it says it's true, but the Bible is true because it says it's true." And to reject that claim reduces you to foolishness. Is that 
how you said exactly. that? Or, okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's, it proves itself and it makes knowledge of everything else possible. Yes. So you reject, if you reject the claim that the Bible is the word of God, you can't know anything and you're, you're left in a very desperate situation there. So you can either embrace the Bible and have knowledge or you can reject the Bible and you can't know anything. You can have beliefs that happen to be true, but you can never justify them. Yes. And, uh, of course, you're going to explain that more in the video series that we're going to see here uh, shortly. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to move on a little bit here and talk. Um, there's a number of things that you're going to be hitting on in that video series. Um, rescuing devices, presuppositions, evidential arguments, yes. all that kind of thing. I want to talk a little bit about one, and this is another one that perhaps I think most of us don't think about or... Uh, maybe we do, but maybe not as deeply as we should. And it's what's referred to as the pretended neutrality fallacy. Yes. Um, we probably, well, what in the world does that even mean? Uh, we, we tend to, and I think maybe our culture imposes on us that we should think neutrally about things. Mm-hmm. Every, every time, you know, whether it's a political thing or, or whatever it might be, it's, you know, you need to put yourself in a neutral camp and then in an unbiased manner decide what truth is. And yet that's not what we've been called to do as Christians. Why not explain to us what the pretend neutrality fallacy is and why we should avoid that? Sure. And of course, with a lot of situations, I mean, with matters of science and so on, it is true that we shouldn't, in most cases, assume the conclusion going in. I mean, right. it, you know, people are taught, well, you need, you, need to come to, you need to come to the evidence with a blank slate so that you don't have these biases. Mm-hmm. And I get that. And there, there is, there's something to that when it comes to issues that are, are, are sort of um, uh, tangential to the Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that. But nonetheless, you can't come to the evidence neutrally because, you know, you, let's, let, for example, let's say you come to, to a rock on the side of the road. And you say, I'm going to do some experiments on that, find out what it's made of and and uh, and draw some conclusions, but I'm going to be totally neutral. I'm not going to make any assumptions. Well, I'm sorry, but you've already made an assumption. You've mm. assumed that your senses are reliable mm. because you, you've assumed that because you see the rock, it's actually there. And because right. when you touch the rock, you feel it, it's actually there. So you have already made some assumptions about the reliability of your senses. Mm-hmm. And, you'll, and you'll need that assumption, by the way, to do experiments on this rock to find out anything about it. So the fact is, you cannot be completely neutral. You can't be. And God hasn't designed us to be neutral. Right. If you think of the mind a bit like a, a computer, which in some senses it is and others not so much, but um, you know, a computer that has absolutely nothing loaded on it can't do anything. Uh, computers need a, an operating system, right. and that's, that's kind of like the, the presuppositional beliefs that God has built into us about mm. the reliability of our senses and so on. Uh, we need those in order to function. We need the presupposition that our, our mind can be rational and that there are laws of logic. So we need certain things in order to study the universe, and those things are not neutral. Those things stem from the Christian worldview. The idea that our senses are basically reliable makes sense. If God has designed my senses, mm-hmm. the idea that my brain has the capacity to be rational and to consider various options and choose the best makes sense if I'm made in the image of God. And I reflect in some sense his His character, his ability to be – of course, God is completely rational, and I have at least a limited ability to be rational because I'm made in his image. Those are non-neutral claims. Now, the funny thing is people who say – uh, oh no, we should be totally neutral. Those people are not being neutral right. because they're saying the Bible's wrong. 
Right. Because the Bible tells us you can't be neutral. In fact, we're not called to be neutral. Jesus tells us, you know, he says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says there's no neutral. You're either with God or you're against him. You're glorifying God or you're you're hating him. And so people who say, not me, I'm, I'm neither for God nor against God. I'm just neutral. Well, I'm sorry, but the Bible says you're wrong. The Bible, uh, in, in making that statement, they're claiming the Bible is wrong. They're claiming that I don't need to have my allegiance to Jesus, as the Bible says. And by saying the Bible is wrong, they're not being neutral. And so the very attempt to be neutral is a non-neutral yes. attempt. And so uh, Dr. Bonson called that the pretended neutrality fallacy. And so um, I guess the, the takeaway is this. When people ask you to be neutral, you should remember two things. One, they're not, and two, you shouldn't be. Yes. I remember uh, one time I was uh, had the opportunity, by God's grace, to share the gospel with uh, a guy who was kind of claiming he was atheist slash agnostic. I don't know that he really fully uh, landed where he was, but basically we were talking for um, some time, and in the course of the conversation, we started talking about logic, um, and he was making the argument that uh, laws of logic are conventional, basically traffic lights, and you know one culture can have this law of logic, mm-hmm. and another one can have another one. Uh, and in the course of the conversation, I pointed out to him, I said, well, you know, what you're allowing for in your worldview would be uh, you're, you're allowing for this statement to make sense. The deer is in the field, and it is not the case that the deer is in the field. And obviously, we, that's, that's a contradiction. We understand yes. that, and we know that uh, because laws of logic are universal uh, and variable. But I'll never forget what he told me in response. He said, basically, he said, you know, yes, that's permissible in my worldview, but that guy isn't going to be eating deer for dinner that night. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he, he conceded the point. And, you know, I concluded that conversation by saying, you know what? You are speaking as if God did not exist, and yet you're acting as if he did exist. Why? And he, he said, I don't know. And I want you to talk maybe the person, you mentioned this a little bit in the introduction here, but we can do everything possible. And, and this, whether this is in, you know, this area of, you know, we're talking about logic and all stuff, there, there are people who are just, just sharing the gospel with their friends or relatives or coworkers, whatever, even in our own church family and, and people that are listening to this. And it's like, you get to the point where I've done everything that I can they have no answer. They, they, they're forced to concede, yes, this is true, and yet they reject that. Maybe encourage that person uh, briefly to know uh, maybe what we talked about a little minute, a minute ago with Romans 1.16 and, and the gospel and God's role and my role. Yeah, our, our, again, well, as Dr. Bonson put it, our, our job is to close their mouths. And if, if you made an argument that they can't refute, you've done your, and if, and if you've done it with the right spirit, obviously right. you can't go in with not to with win an argument. Right. Exactly. Yeah. If you go in there with the right attitude, a, an attitude of humble boldness, humble because of who we are and yeah. boldness because of who God is and his word and the, and the irrefutability of God's word. And you make a good argument and the person says, yeah, I can't answer that, but I'm still not going to be a Christian. Yeah. Uh, well, that's up to God. That is entirely up to God. And there's yeah. there's a tendency, and e- you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Even I feel this at times. There's a tendency to think, boy, I could have done more. Sure. And uh, if I'd answered a different way, maybe yeah. they responded. But the fact is, it's you can't convert 
you can't convert somebody because the Bible tells us that people who are who are not saved are they're dead in their sins is the analogy that it uses. And you can't resurrect a dead man. Only God mm-hmm. can resurrect yeah. a dead man. He can, and he does. Um, he's done that before. So if you made a good argument, you should be happy with, and, and you did it in the right spirit, you should be happy with uh, the result, whatever that result is. And maybe the person goes away. Maybe, and by the way, sometimes they convert later. Sometimes they have yes. to think about it for yep. a little while. Sometimes God will bring other people into their lives or, or you know, they'll, 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 the Holy Spirit will work on them for a little bit. So you don't, you don't know. It might be later on that they say, you know what, I, I have to repent because the, the Bible really is true. So uh, don't be discouraged if yeah. somebody doesn't convert right away. And remember that it's not your job anyway. It's, it's up to God. And you can certainly pray for that person Absolutely. because God does listen to our prayers. He really does. Yeah. I want to uh, ask you a question here that this might be a little bit of a rabbit trail because um, we're going down uh, the path of uh, evidence. And, and as you argue before, evidence, the, the correct use of evidence is good. Um, yeah. we, we just want to use it the right way. But in the video series, you're going to talk about rescuing devices um, and and uh, talking about this orc cloud idea and comets. And creationists have a quote-unquote problem, uh, put it in quotes there, but this distant starlight problem. I actually wanted to ask you if you could share a little bit of your thought on what the answer to that problem is. Uh, you may or may not go into this in an apologetic situation. Um, yeah. I don't know, but... Just for the sake of maybe my own curiosity, uh, I know you've written about the ASC convention, yes. and I, I think that's your position on it. Yes. Um, but can you share that a little bit? It's just fascinating to me. I I know nothing. I'm I'm leaving the realm of uh, the area where I have any knowledge on this, so I'm just throwing this at you, saying, sure. "Tell me what is this? Uh, what is this ASC convention? How does that solve the distant starlight problem?" Sure. And it's something that's, it's a little different to do in a kind of a radio soundbite, but um, I'll, I'll give you an answer, but okay. I'll point out too that I've, I've given a more explicit, I actually wrote a book. See, see, the problem is the answer, although it's, it's simple, it involves a branch of physics that most people know nothing about. Gotcha. And it's the branch of physics that, that was discovered by Einstein, sometimes called relativity. That's mm-hmm. not a really great name for it. It probably should be called invariance, but in any case, uh, th- things get weird when you start moving closer to the speed of light. If you're in a rocket ship and you're moving very close to the speed of light, things become very strange. Time slows down and, and lengths contract and you get all this weird physics. And this is, this is known. This is, this has been experimentally demonstrated and it can be theoretically proved anyway. And one of the implications of the physics of, that Einstein discovered is that there is some ambiguity in how we define now at a distance. Now, if I if I ask you what time is it right now at your location, it's easy enough. You just looked at your watch and mm-hmm. you say that's no problem. I know what time it is here now. That's and every, you know everybody agrees on that. That's not a problem. But when you want to say what is the time now on the moon, there's some ambiguity in that. Mm-hmm. There's some leeway, and there's different ways of defining time at a distance, different ways of synchronizing clocks. And you, maybe you've seen the old spy movies where they say, let's all synchronize our watches, which means they read the same time at the same time. Now, if everybody's at the same location, it's easy to synchronize watches. You just said that you can see that they're synchronized. But if something's at a distant location, there is some ambiguity. There's There are different ways of synchronizing clocks and you'll get different answers. And most people use what's called the Einstein synchrony convention because it makes the math easy. And in that convention, 
light takes theoretically billions of years to travel from the distant galaxies to Earth. But that's just one convention. There's another convention called the Anisotropic Synchrony Convention, or ASC. And under that convention, light takes no time at all to get mm. from galaxies to the Earth. And so, and, and it turns out, by the way, that all ancient cultures used the ASC mm. convention, all of them. It wasn't until modern times that we switched over to the Einstein convention. And so what that means is the Bible is most likely using this ancient convention, whereby light takes no time at all to get from distant galaxies to the Earth. Now, mm. if you were to shoot a beam back, it would take a long period of time, because when you use that convention— light travels at different speeds in different directions. And it's instantaneous only when it's moving toward the observer. Mm. It's slower in other directions. So, And I know that sounds bizarre. It sounds weird. But the fact is this is actually well-established in physics. And in fact, there was a paper uh, written by uh, Sarkar and Stachel. And it's they're not creationists. In fact, one of them is an ardent evolutionist where they use the same convention. And they say, yeah, using this convention, light takes no time at all to get from galaxies to the Earth. And so the, 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 the simple answer you can give to somebody who asks about distant starlight is you can say, well, well, in fact, even secular physicists know that there are ways you can get the light here instantaneously, mm -hmm. even today. And, uh, and, and and then tell them to look up uh, Dr. Lyle's stuff, <laughs> and, they, and they can read about it. So the 186,000 miles a second, that's the two-way speed of light, because that's, that's, that's the only trip. way we can measure it, right? That's right. And then the one-way, uh, as you're proposing here, is instantaneous. So the star, so God is not creating, you know, the, the beams of light en route to the earth, uh, right. got, He's the, not doing that. we're seeing it instantly. What we look at the stop, the sky is happening at that moment. That's right. If yeah. we use that convention and I'm right. not suggesting the other conventions wrong, I'm just suggesting the Bible uses the ask convention gotcha. and therefore there is no starlight problem. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, I wanted to ask you uh, a couple questions. I opened this up for some people in the community as well as in our church to ask some questions. And so I'm just going to read a couple of those questions for you. Um, one of those questions uh, that was asked is, how do you do an internal critique uh, uh, in a Jehovah's Witness worldview? Can you uh, briefly do that? Sure. Um, I, that's not, it's not something I specialize in. So if I'm, <laughs> I'm but but that's the, the neat thing about the presuppositional approach is you don't have to be an expert in everything. Right. All you have to do is start asking questions. <laughs> that's all you right. have to do. And so if I'm with a Jehovah's Witness, I'm just going to ask him questions about his worldview, why he believes what he believes, especially points of disagreement. I'm going to look for arbitrariness, where he's assumed something and he doesn't have a good reason for it. I'm going to look for inconsistency in his worldview, mm -hmm. things where he, he believes two things that can't both be true at the same time. And I'm going to look for the failure of that worldview to provide mm -hmm. the what we call the preconditions of intelligibility, the basis for laws of logic and so on. And in particular, since I, I, know, I do know something about the Jehovah's Witnesses, I know that they're what's sometimes called a Christian cult, meaning that they would where the title of Christianity, at least I think they do, and yet they deny one or more essential Christian attributes. And uh, and a good one to focus on when you're dealing with any cult, a good one to focus on is the Trinity, because as far as mm -hmm. I know, all cults deny the Trinity. And that's, that's a good indication that you're dealing with someone who uh, does not have a, a truly Christian worldview. And yet— Jehovah's Witnesses would claim to believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's a huge plus. Think about that. I'm dealing yeah. with someone who who already accepts that the Bible is true. Now I can I can I can use scripture without sure. having to go through and, and, and prove it because theoretically they already accept it. And I can go through and show 
the place is what I would probably do with the Jehovah's Witnesses. I would focus on the Trinity, and okay. uh, because that's something that I have studied. In fact, in the back of my book, um, Understanding Genesis, I have a dialogue with somebody who is anti-Trinitarian. I don't think he's a Jehovah's Witness, but nonetheless, since they have that same defect in their worldview, you can focus yeah. on that. And you say, well, what about all these verses that indicate that God is triune? He's mm-hmm. more than one in persons and yet one in essence. Yeah, good. Another question that came in was uh, maybe share just a few logical conclusions of an atheistic evolutionary worldview. So you start with these um, presuppositions, you start with this worldview, you start with these uh, underpinnings, and perhaps some people have not thought, what is the logical conclusion of that? And to my my mind comes abortion, euthanasia, sure. those kind yeah. of things. What are what are some uh, other examples, and how does how, how do they get from worldview to that? Um, that conclusion? Well, one thing to point out is because atheism is internally inconsistent, um, you can literally conclude anything. Hmm. And that's something that I I think I demonstrated that in one of my books, where I show that if you allow a contradiction in your worldview, literally you can conclude anything from it. And uh, but in any case, there are some that are are that people are more likely to conclude than others. And one is uh, of course they're gonna be they're gonna tend to be pro-abortion because why not kill a chemical accident? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thieves, murderers, they tend to think in terms of atheism, mm-hmm. regardless of what they profess, because they think, well, you know, why not kill somebody? That person's just a, mm. a ball of chemicals. And, um, you know, why not do what I want? There's a tendency to do what you want sexually, because if we're just animals, animals pretty much do what they want. There's not a moral code there. So the the absence of an objective universal moral code is one of the one of the pivotal things that that stems hmm. naturally from atheistic thinking, and some people would even try to defend that. They'd say, "Yes, it's true. Morality is relative. There's no absolute." And then all you have to do is hypothetically pull a gun on them and say, "Can you give a reason why I shouldn't pull the trigger?" As uh, as Bonson put it yeah. in the Gordon and uh, in the Bonson Stein debate, and uh, of course they can't give an answer to that. Sure. But uh, in any case, it, it, inconsistent thinking, um, irrationality, immoral, and and again, I'm not saying that. You know, people are saying, well, you're saying that all atheists are immoral. Actually, I'm saying everyone's immoral. <laughs> it's just that in the in the atheistic worldview, there's no basis for morality. Right. And so although there are atheists who try to be moral, they're they're not being consistent with their worldview. It shows in their heart of hearts they do know God. Uh, another question that came in, is the age of the earth a gospel issue? And, and certainly, um, I mean, define what a gospel issue is, but um, can you explain what you think on the age of the earth and how it relates to the gospel. Is it a sure, essential issue? Sure. I mean, the Bible indicates that God created in six days, human beings are made on the sixth day, and you add up the ages, and you get something like 6,000 years for mm-hmm. the age of the earth and the universe for that matter. Um, and is that a gospel issue in the sense of, do I have to believe in a young earth to be saved? Well, no, the Bible, fortunately, God saves us by his grace, right. and he doesn't require us to have perfect theology, but but that being said, it is a gospel issue in the sense that it it, it has a log- it has logical implications right. on the gospel, because you see, if the Earth's not young, if if the fossils are billions of years old, and that means and a fossil is a dead thing, right? You get these dinosaur fossils and mm-hmm. so on. If those are if those existed long before Adam existed, because we all agree human beings don't go back 100 million years, even the evolutionists can see that human beings are recent. Um, then that means you got death before. Adam sinned. And boy, is that a problem, because the Bible indicates that death is the result, and in fact, the penalty for sin. It's because Adam sinned that death entered the world. And um, see, if you say, well, I don't know, I think death might have been in the world long before Adam sinned, 
then that means death is not the penalty for sin. And then why did Jesus die on the cross? And and that is a gospel issue, right. isn't it? The idea yes. that death is the penalty for sin is a gospel issue. And so I would point out that while a person can be saved apart from believing in a literal Genesis, uh, the gospel will not make sense. It will not make logical sense apart right. from the literal history recorded in Genesis, including right. the age of the earth. Yeah. We'll uh, do one more uh, question here that was uh, submitted. Maybe this is a fun one. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> What what is up with the recent uh, uptick in people interested in this these flat Earth theories? What what <laughs> what is going on yeah. there? You know, I, I I wonder if it if if part of that is because we as Christian apologists have maybe not used the right approach. Um, we've used an evidentialistic approach for the most part. We've taught people to question evolution when what we should have been teaching them is discernment. Mm. Uh, how does it discern truth from error? And so I think there's a tendency for people to say, well, we were lied to about evolution. You know, the, the majority right. of scientists are wrong on that issue. Maybe we've been lied to about other things. Maybe we've, we've right. been lied to about the spheroscope of the earth and so right. on. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the fact is, if you see, and this is where we need to teach people discernment and how to sure. how to discern genuine science from pseudoscience. Evolution is pseudoscience. It's not something that you can confirm and repeat by experimentation. Round Earth is. You can confirm that by experimentation. I live now in Colorado, and when the sun rises, uh, before I can see the sun, it's already hitting the mountaintops because right. the Earth is round. And so I, the, 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 it's beautiful to watch the sun rises here because I'm living – I live just uh, – you know, just east of the mountains. And so mm-hmm. the sun hits the top of the mountains and the light comes down like a curtain until, right. it, until it reaches the ground. And then suddenly I can see the sun because right. of the curvature of the earth and lunar eclipses. We had a lunar eclipse just uh, about a month ago yeah. and where you have the earth between the sun and the moon and the shadow is always a round shadow because the earth is indeed spherical. And frankly, the Bible indicates a round earth in places like uh, yes. Job 2610, where God inscribes a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. So, uh, you shouldn't deny science. What we do want to deny is pseudoscience, things right. like evolution. And granted, when, you, when you're with a secular scientist, you'll get a mix. You'll get a mix of good science, and you'll get some right. evolutionary storytelling. And so the yeah. key is to discern between good science and pseudoscience. Good, good. What uh, As we kind of wrap up here, do you have any uh, resources or anything that you'd like to point us in, maybe stuff that you've done, you share your website or – books, any anything that would be helpful as Christians continue to think in this area? Sure, and thank you. Yes, the, the Biblical Science Institute is, is the website I'd encourage them to go to, and it's just biblicalscienceinstitute.com. Okay. And uh, there's all kinds of free resources on there in terms of articles that they can get information on, uh, and then we have a we have a bookstore on there too, where they can where they can uh, get some of the the books and things that I've written. Uh, Understanding Genesis is a good book that that deals with the topic of how do we interpret Scripture, mm-hmm. and does the Bible give us instructions on how to interpret it? And it actually does. Uh, Ultimate Proof of Creation is the book that would cover the kinds of topics we've been talking about today, and that's available on the website. We have some new stuff. I have a logic curriculum that I just uh, released, and that's available yeah. on our website as well, because, uh, boy, logic is something that's just yes. not taught in most schools anymore. And if it were taught, I think we'd have more people be Christians, because the Christian sure. worldview is rational, and any alternative is, is not. Yeah. So, And uh, Physics of Einstein, we have a book on that topic there as well, that if you want to get information on the distant starlight issue. So those are some of the resources all available on the biblicalscienceinstitute.com website. Great. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Al. This has been a fun conversation and really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to uh, talk with me. And I know it's going to be a blessing to uh, our church and our community as well. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Orville YMCA. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com. Oh, 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 oh,